We'll get back to Billy Ray Valentine in a minute. Uh, but if the bumper at the end there leaves you scratching your head a little bit, kind of like, okay, uh, that's because uh, that's what grace does. It leaves you kind of scratching your head. That's why we call it the grace conundrum. It's the kind of thing, a conundrum is something that just, you can't really make sense of it. You kind of look at it, and right when you think you kind of got it figured out, there's still a piece of it that just still kind of baffles you in some way. And that's what grace is, right? When you think you're beginning to understand grace, there's a piece of it that just kind of comes out of nowhere and confuses you a little bit more. And it's just so hard to really comprehend. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at this grace conundrum. And grace is at the heart of what Christianity is all about. It's what sets it apart and makes it unique. Uh, stories told that many years ago, there was a convention of religious or Christian leaders over in England and they were discussing what makes Christianity unique, and they were talking and coming up with different ideas, and as they explored ideas like, well, what about the in- incarnation? What about God becoming flesh? And they realized there are stories in Hindu faiths of, of a God uh, in human form. Uh, when they looked at some other ideas of what about resurrection, they saw that there were some other faiths out there that had the idea of a deity coming back from the dead and coming back to life. And in the midst of this discussion, C.S. Lewis just happened to walk in the room a little bit late and says, wait a minute, what are you all discussing again? They said, so what makes Christianity unique? He said, that's easy, it's grace. It's clearly, it's grace. No other religion has anything like it. And the Muslims have the five pillars of Islam that you follow after. Uh, Buddhism has the idea, and Buddhism and Hindu both have the idea of uh, karma, and Buddha has also the eightfold path on top of that. Judaism lost sight of grace long ago and has looked to the law and a systematic uh, following of things to earn God's favor. It's only in Christianity you see this idea of grace, which to me has always pointed to the idea that it's got to be something beyond what humanity would have created because you would never come up with something as crazy, ridiculous, ludicrous as grace. I mean, the idea that good people go to heaven and that bad people face the consequences for what they've done makes sense. And every world faith is based on that premise in some way, shape, or form. Whereas Christianity says, no, it doesn't matter how you live. Good people, bad people, it doesn't really matter. There really are no such thing as good people, so let's just begin there to begin with. As a matter of fact, what God does, he just says, I want to have a relationship with everybody. I want everybody to have a loving relationship with me that will last for all eternity. Well, what's the difference between those who have that and those who don't? Your choice. Your choice to have a relationship or not, that's it. No, no, seriously, it's got to be more than that. No, no, that's it. That's, that's the Christian message completely. That's it in, in, in its entirety. It makes absolutely no sense. Grace goes against every instinct of humanity. From the time you're young, we teach the truths about the way life works, and grace isn't how life works. Uh, think of all of the proverbial truths we teach uh, to kids and, and ones that we know and love. Some of these even have variants because they're so common. Uh, in life, there's no free lunch or ride, depending on where you come from. Um, uh, there's always strings. You reap what you, you need to learn. Actions have, what goes around comes, at some point you have to pay the, or the piper, whichever one you want. I've had it up to, you're skating on thin. I can only take, and one of these days, Alice, to the moon. Younger ones didn't get that one, but the rest of us, yeah. I'm just old enough to, to, to get that one there. 
And that, of course, is why Billy Ray Valentine is stealing everything he can get his hands on because it just can't be true. There's no way these two old white guys are pulling me into their car and giving me a job for $80,000 a year and giving me a house. And man, did you see that car phone? <laughs> and that TV stereo console? Uh, even as dated as it was, even in now nowadays, it was, there's no way anybody's just going to do that. And that's why he looks at it and goes, there's got to be a catch. And of course, if you've seen the movie, there is a catch. He's right, there is a catch. The message of grace, though, there's no catch. It really is that crazy. It really is that ludicrous that God would bail you out and then bless you upon blessing, upon blessing, upon blessing, upon blessing. And even when you break something, he still has a blessing there, even in that midst. It was every part of that clip was just grace through and through. Even the part where he wants a nightstick for somebody else right after he's been shown grace. Is that us or what? <laughs> the Easter story, though, is all about grace because the Christian message is all about grace. Uh, from the very beginning of the story of the Bible, we see grace enter in. Uh, you have God creating this world, this amazing place for humanity uh, to have, a, have the opportunity to enjoy an amazing experience in a relationship with God. And then in chapter 3, you see that God's uh, provided for them a choice. If you don't want a relationship with me and you want to go and do your own thing, if you want to try to be a God unto yourself, you can go that path if you want and walk away from me. And to do that, there's this tree in the center of the garden called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where you can go ahead. If you want to believe that you can decide right from wrong yourself, then go that route. But if you do that, the penalty for that is death. Why? Because to go that path is to go down a path of evil. And when you go down a path of evil, that is not something that God can tolerate. As a matter of fact, even, even us, we don't like the concept of judgment or consequences, but how often have you cried out for God to rid the world of evil? And you do it only until you realize if God's going to rid the world of evil, who else is he going to rid the world of? You and me too. Like, it's one thing to talk about sin. We're kind of a little, sin can make people a little uncomfortable because sin's almost a judgmental religious term. But what I find interesting is that even non-religious people agree with the concept of evil. I mean, we, when, when terrorism strikes, we, we call that an access of evil. Or when you see one country invade another country at will, we look at that and say there's something evil about that. Uh, our stories and our movies reflect this. We, we create fictional worlds with evil in them, like Harry Potter or Star Wars. We, we create uh, movies with realism, a realism of evil, things like No Country for Old Men, or, or series like Breaking Bad as somebody descends into the, the depths of depravity and evil uh, increases. And, and so we see there with Adam and Eve in the garden that this evil thought entered in. And so what has God to do? Well, they go and they realize the calamity of their mistake and they try to cover up for it. They try to hide from it. And of course, all that gets revealed. But the most miraculous thing happens, this grace message comes in in Genesis 3, where God, instead of killing them, rather he kills an animal and he covers them with the skin of the animal. And then the rest of the Old Testament goes through and you begin to see how God continually shows love as people continue to walk away. And over time, it becomes apparent that the animal's death really isn't a full subject, it isn't really a full uh, atonement for what they've done. It doesn't really uh, account for the evil that has happened. Ultimately, it truly is a human death that's going to be required. And so what does God do? This is called the, the, the divine dilemma. On the one hand, God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you that lasts for all eternity. On the other hand, Adam and Eve and all of us who have followed after have all chosen to go our own way and have chosen to go down a path of evil. 
I mean, if you just think about your own life and the evil present in your own life, whether it be lying, cheating, stealing, violence, all of the things that you've done, we, we often say, well, I'm not hurting nobody, really. You've never hurt anybody by your actions. Nothing you've ever done has caused any pain or any hurt to anybody else. How long can you continue to fool yourself? So what does God to do? He wants to have a loving relationship that lasts for all eternity, but on the other hand, you've done things that he can't tolerate. They, they, there's, it's impossible to have an eternal relationship with someone who's going to continue to go down an evil path like you and I have. What does he do? Now, on top of that, our, our evil actions require a death. So how does he have a loving relationship with you for all eternity if your life is required for it? Well, that's where you move to the Easter story. And that's why God himself comes, and his plan all along was that one day he would give his own life in place of yours. And it would do two things. One, it would both pay for your sin, but also in hopes of showing you that kind of love would pull you out of this decision and the path of evil that you've been on. And so that's what you have when you begin to read through and discuss and explore the Easter story. Uh, this morning I want to read the Easter story out of Luke chapter 23. We pick up in verse 32 and it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place that was called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the other criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Then the soldiers divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood there, and the rulers even sneered at him, and they said, Oh, he saved others. Well, let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now, what they're referring to is, shortly before the crucifixion, there were rumors and stories about Jesus healing a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus had died. He'd been in a tomb for several days. And there was this story out there that just up the road in Bethany that Jesus had brought this guy back to life. There were other stories that had happened up in Galilee and other places around. But let's face it, this was all just propaganda. These were all lies. I mean, Jesus is a fraud and he's a charlatan. And we're out to expose him for the fraud and the charlatan that he is. And that's, that was their mindset. Do you think any of them believed any of these stories? No. So when they had him nailed to a cross and lifted up, what do you think they're thinking? The fraud's finally been exposed. Don't we love it when frauds get exposed? I mean, we tune in, we watch. We'll watch Dateline, we'll watch ABC, we'll watch all those specials where we get to see a fraud exposed. I remember when I was a kid, I used to love watching John Stossel do those uh, hidden camera videos where they put a hidden camera. Y'all remember some of these things? They put it inside a refrigerator, and all they would do is just go turn something off in the refrigerator. They'd call a repairman. He'd come out, act like he was doing stuff. He'd flip, you know, realize all it was was a flip switch and then charge a person like $400 for new parts that he didn't do anything with, right? Then John Stossel would go and expose them and ask them questions, and the guy would get all mad. And some, a few of them would be a little repentant. A lot of them would just be mad and you know, go off and say it was a setup and a scam, everything. We love watching frauds get exposed. And so did they. And it appealed uh, to, to that depravity within us that just loves to pounce on somebody uh, for the evil that they are. And so they're there pouncing on Jesus at this, po- at this moment going, oh, yeah, he, he brought somebody back to life. Let's see him do it now. Yeah, yeah, you're exposed now. No tricks, nothing up your sleeve. You know, you can't control the audience. You can't control the crowd. You can't control the narrative. What now, chosen one? And then to move on, it says, and then the soldiers came up and mocked him also. And they had offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, I've heard this taught a certain way, and it never made sense to me. 
Uh, and the teaching went something like this. Well, you see, they gave him wine vinegar, which was an antiseptic of the day, uh, which was there for both cleansing, but also it acted as sort of a numbing agent. And, and so they gave it to Jesus in his pain and suffering, as they often would do. He cried out that he was thirsty, and so they were there trying to quench his thirst. I always scratched my head, and I said, this doesn't make any sense to me. It says the soldiers are mocking him, and when he cries out and says he's thirsty, they happen to have this, you know, bottle of Chardonnay, which they open up and give to him. Does that make any sense to anybody in this room? No. I did some further study to figure out what this was. I shared this a couple years back. I'll bring it up again. And also, it, may, it will always perplex me. Where do they just happen to have a stick and a sponge and all these things to get it up there to him anyway, right? Well, I did some digging. Here's what I found. Whenever a Roman detachment went out into the field, they would always carry with them a bucket with a pole and a sponge, and the bucket would be filled with a wine vinegar type of mixture. And it surely was an antiseptic, a cleansing agent. And the purpose of it was whenever someone had to, I don't know, answer the call of nature, they would go find a private place, and they would take the bucket and the stick on a sponge. They didn't have toilet paper back in the day, and they would use the stick on the sponge to be able to reach around back to clean. So let me read this again. When the soldiers came up and also mocked him, as Jesus says, I thirst, they went over and picked up the bucket with the sponge on the stick and they shoved it in his mouth. Disgusting, isn't it? Like, it's one thing for him to have endured a fraud trial, right? In the middle of the night. By the way, just what happens is in the middle of the night, they arrest him, and they hold a trial in the, like at midnight at night, where nobody even knows what's going on except for those who are in power. They wait till the crack of dawn at 6 a.m. when supposedly Rome's open for business, and they basically go and they wake up Pilate at 6 a.m. and demand he comes out to try Jesus so they can execute him. Pilate looks at the fraud scheme, you know, sham that the whole thing is, wants nothing to do with it, tries to pass it off to Herod. Herod wants nothing to do with it, sends it back over to Pilate. Pilate still wants nothing to do with all of this, but the people threaten there's going to be a riot if you don't do something. So then he tries to release Jesus. Instead, they uh, end up getting Barabbas released instead of Jesus. And so Pilate says, fine, you have him. Uh, all of this lying and conniving behind the scenes, you want to talk about, you know, the most corrupt of all politics, is what's going on behind the scenes. So then they take Jesus, they strap him up, they force him up the hill. After they've beaten him, put a crown of thorns on his head and mocked him, uh, they put a slogan over top of his head that says the king of the Jews, which they don't believe. They just think it's all a, a big joke. They spit on him and they kick him as he goes up the hill. They then drive spikes into him, raise him up, where they say, oh yeah, some son of God you are. Get yourself off the cross if you really can save people. And then when he cries out and says, I thirst, they take the toilet brush and shove it in his mouth. At what point would you snap? I mean, really. I would say everybody has a certain breaking point, no matter how patient you are, right? There's some of you in this room who have a really short fuse, and there's some of you who just have, you know, patience upon patience upon patience. Even the most patient among you, or among us, at some point has a breaking point, right? At some point, you finally have it up to here, and at some point you go to the moon. Would it be the sham trial that you endured? 
Would it be the whipping and the beating and the mocking? Would it be the chance of the crowd to crucify you for no reason whatsoever? Would it be them kicking and pushing and spitting on you as you stumbled up the hill? Would it be the mocking that you endured as the religious leaders joked and teased you as you were raised up? If none of those, at the very least, wouldn't it be the toilet brush that was shoved in your mouth? At what point do you say, is there an obscenity that comes out of your mouth? But what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. I mean, wouldn't it be more like, forgive her, forgive her, not him, not the guy with the stick in the, in the sponge, no, right? At what point does the Austrian accent come out where he says, I'll be back, right? Right? I mean, at some point, you have a breaking point, don't you? Is there no greater proof of his divinity than the fact that when he's squeezed and when he's pressed and when he's under duress and when he's under stress, the only thing that comes out of him is grace? Father, forgive him. And then it says, one of the criminals who hung there with him hurled insults at him. Yeah, aren't you the Messiah? Come on, man, save yourself and save us. Basically saying, come on, man. Some savior you are, idiot. Even the guy next to him is. I mean, and that's what you would expect out of any of us, right? When we're under duress, do, do we not kind of get a little grumpy, a little moody? A little angry. You know, you would think that maybe there'd be some camaraderie among those up on the cross, but no, it's just everybody's angry at him, I'll join in the anger. And then the first kindness that's shown to Jesus since he first walked into the Garden of Gethsemane the night before happens from the other criminal next to him. It says, but the other criminal rebuked him and said, hey man, don't you fear God? Come on, you and me, we're under the same sentence. We're being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. Now, I, I wish there was some backstory to the criminals. I wish we had some insight. We don't. Which, what you have here is pretty much about all we get. Where I'm going to go next is just pure speculation. I'm trying to you know, put this together in my mind. The two criminals either knew each other we're guilty of the same thing. Maybe they had both done this thing together. Uh, based on what he's saying here, we're both guilty. Maybe they were both in the holding cell together and had both talked about their crimes and why they were being punished. I don't know. But somewhere, there was some connection between the two of them that knew that. Second of all, it seems as though, at least it would make sense, however long they've been held for, Jesus wasn't in there with them until, what, just a few hours. I mean, he's brought before Pilate of a six. They're up on the cross by nine. So, I mean, Jesus is kind of late to this party. Maybe Barabbas was scheduled to be with them. Barabbas gets plucked out, and this Jesus guy gets thrown in. Of course, they probably asked some questions as to who this guy. I'm sure through the crowd they've heard some stories about him if they hadn't already heard about Jesus even before this. And so at some point they realize this guy has basically gotten railroaded through the system and shouldn't be here in the first place. And so this guy looks over. He's like, man, we're, we're here because we deserve to be here. He didn't deserve this. Then he just simply turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
That's all he says. Just remember me when you come here. The idea of remember me, there's, it's, it's like what Joseph says to, uh, Joseph helps out a guy when he's in prison back in the Old Testament in Genesis 40, and he says to the guy, hey, when you get out and you go see Pharaoh again, can you remember me? Don't, don't forget about me, man. Remember, I, I, you know, remember me. You know, just help me out if you can. The idea there is, you know, come back and, and, and save me if you can. Now, think about it. He's not saying, get me out of this predicament. He's not saying, end my suffering. He's simply saying, I'm about to die. I deserve to die. And whatever God does for you, whatever God's going to do for you, Jesus, because it seems like as if there's something about you that's different than everybody else, maybe you truly are the Messiah. And if so, could you keep me in mind on the other side? What a simple confession. Not very profound, not very deep. Jesus says back to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that little prefix on the beginning of the sentence is truly. Uh, it's very similar in our own language. We would say, hey, hey, trust me on this. Or, listen, I know you're not going to believe what I'm about to say, but trust me. You say that kind of thing whenever you know the thing you're going to say next is so absurd, the person's not going to believe it, right? Like, dude, you just have to see this. You have to see this, right? What, what, what are you saying? You wouldn't believe it unless you saw it. You, I know what I'm saying right now. You're not... What he's about to say is, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. You ever have those pictures on a wall that's like a picture of paradise to you? Maybe it's some bungalow over the ocean. Maybe it's some picture, beautiful picture on the mountain. Maybe it's a golf course in some pristine landscape, something like that. You ever look at that in a moment when you've just had like the worst day ever? Maybe you got a picture up like on your wall or on your phone or something, and you look at that, and that just seems like it is an entire world away. Like, there can't possibly be a place somewhere else on this globe that looks like that with what I'm experiencing and enduring right now. And Jesus says, today, you and I will be there. That's, that's too incredible to believe. And if you believe that, I want to say you understand grace, but you don't understand grace because you don't know the full story. Because every time you think you understand grace, it's far deeper. You see, I always thought that the message of the thief on the cross was, it's never too late for grace. Even at the very end of your life, it's never too late for grace. Because that, like, that seems like grace, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't seem like, doesn't the story already at this point sound incredible? Right? I mean, the guy is literally about to die, and all he says is, remember me. And Jesus says, in a sense, you're forgiven, you're set free, you're going to heaven with me. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, some of you are like, uh, yeah, I, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You've never had a relationship with God. You've been as bad as a person could be. What you've done is deserving of capital punishment. And all you've done is turn to Jesus at the last minute and say, remember me. And he says, all right, you're in. What other religious system allows that? Nothing that any human would ever come up with. But then let me read you how Matthew tells the story. And now you begin to understand what grace is. Matthew 27, verse 38 and following. Two rebels were crucified along with him. These are these same two guys, obviously two criminals. One on his right and one on his left. And all those who passed by hurled insults at them, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple, really? And build it in three days? Uh, yeah, save yourself, buddy. Uh, buddy's not in there, it's just... But, um, <laughs> Come on down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others. He can't even save himself. 
yeah, he's the king of Israel. We'll let him come on down from the cross now, and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let's see if God really wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Let me read this next verse. Listen very carefully. In the same way, the criminals who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Did you get that? All right. Oftentimes when we read through the story, we think it's like he gets put up on the cross, they mock him, and then he says this, and then he says this, and then he says this, and then he dies. No, he's put up on the cross, he's nailed at 9 a.m. He doesn't die until 3. So there's a lot of hours here, okay? As I piece it together, most likely at 9 a.m. or close to that is when he's nailed to the cross and all of the mocking, you can just picture the spectacle it is as he's raised up and the cheers and the jeers and the mocking. And that's where a lot of, you know, the, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law all mock him. Sometime over the next couple hours is when he cries out that he's thirsty, probably around 11 a.m. or so. And that's when they shove the toilet brush in his mouth. And then we know at noon, the whole earth goes dark. And around three is when Jesus gives up his life. Sometime between 11 and noon is likely the time where the one criminal turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Most likely when Matthew talks about the, both the criminals mocking him is probably somewhere in the 9 to 10 o'clock hour or so. So what you have is this. It's not just a guy who was guilty of some crime, who's facing a capital punishment for it, who's put up on the cross, who then turns to Jesus in his last moments. That's what I always thought it was. No, you have a guy who has a capital sentence against him, is put up on a cross, who's mocking Jesus along with everybody else. And sometime between 9.30, 10 o'clock-ish, and 11.30 or so, the reality of who Jesus is begins to sink in. Who would act like this? Who would respond this way? We know there's a Roman soldier, a centurion, who's also having these same kind of thoughts. We'll learn about that you know, later in the, in the Easter story when, when the centurion says, Surely is... so, there's, so there's some people who are looking at this and trying to put things in. One of them is this one thief who begins off joining with everybody else, mocking him, and sometime in the midst of that, all of a sudden has a change of heart. And looks at the other, th- other thief who, or the other, other criminal who's been mocking him right along with him and all of a sudden he goes, no, 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 stop this, stop this. He doesn't deserve this. Just shut up, man. Jesus, can you remember me? You see, I thought, I used to think the story was, well, there was one criminal who mocked and the other one didn't. No, they both were. And the message isn't just that it's never too late for grace. It's that you're never too sinful for grace. I mean, this is the guy who on the way to the hospital is cursing God. This is the guy who the pastor or priest comes into his room to offer him one last opportunity and he flips him off and cusses him out and sends him out of the room. And then just before his dying breath, he says, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. Does that guy go? Yep. That's how crazy grace is. That's how insane grace is. 
That's how incomprehensible grace is. That the guy who was mocking him just an hour before is forgiven too. Now, in this room, we're all represented by these two thieves. All of us at one point or another have blamed God, gotten angry at God for the things and events in our lives. The question is, is at what point will you or will you ever just pause for a moment and reflect on who God is and turn back to him and just say, God, you're my only hope. Like the thief, you almost, you, when you understand really where you're at and who you truly are, you, it's almost even hard to ask God for forgiveness. The thief just says, hey, could you remember me? I mean, this is somebody who fully understands they don't deserve to be forgiven. They're not coming in with any kind of pride. Just whatever you got, man. Jesus is like, whatever I got, I give you everything. You get the full ticket. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Both mocked. Both were guilty. One spent eternity in a relationship with God and the other didn't. Why? One simply asked. One simply wanted to. That's it. That's the message of grace. You get the same choice this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to enter into a relationship with you at any time. This side of death. Father, none of us knows how long we have. None of us know when the end will come. But every one of us needs to know, Father, that it is never too late to ask for grace. Sin is never too great to ask for grace. If even one who has mocked you and ridiculed you within hours of his own death and yours as well can be forgiven, then so can I. And Father, if there's any here, Father, who doesn't know if they have a relationship with you this morning, may they just turn to you and say, God, I'm no better, honestly, than this thief on the cross. Can you remember me? Can you forgive me? I want to have a relationship with you that will last for all eternity. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.